Is intensive grazing just another fad, or is there something to it? In this show, we'll head up north about 60 miles south of the Canadian border to Poplar, Montana, and visit with Wilbur Reed of Reed Ranch to talk about how and why he moved into intensive grazing, plus some practical advice and details for those interested. Grab a pen and paper for this one, folks. It's the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, your host, and thank you for joining us. I'm glad to have you along for our show because, as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to be talking about intensive grazing, and I'm going to admit that it really is one of those topics that's kind of a buzzword in the ranching circles, and it seems like it's also a topic that elicits different types of responses from folks, kind of depending on the crowd you're in. For some they kind of think it's a fad some that are all in and maybe just a little bit naive about it and then there's those that have opened to it but maybe cautious not sure where to start and also not wanting to really make any mistakes but i believe today's show is going to be for everyone for those that challenge the concept to those that are ready to go and also for those that are on the fence so in our show you're going to hear from a genuine ranching operation that is doing it why they did it the mistakes they made and really some very practical advice about how to do it. Like I said earlier, grab a pen and paper because our guest, Wilbur Reed, will be offering a tremendous amount of information and resources that you can use about intensive grazing. So that is going to be our featured interview for this show. Also on our show, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will provide his thoughts and Tim's two cents. And in our final segment today that you'll want to stick around for, meteorologist Don Day joins us to talk about the increased sunspot activity and how that relates to our long-term weather. So a big show lined up for you today. Glad to have you along. By the way, as we've been talking about in a couple previous episodes, announcing our return back to satellite radio, as the Working Ranch Radio Show will be carried at 12 o'clock noon on Saturdays on Rural Radio Channel 147 on Sirius XM. So you'll continue to get the first airing on your podcast if you get it that way. Be sure to subscribe as well or follow us so you can get Get those emails of when we drop a new episode, or you can also catch it Saturdays, 12 noon Eastern, the Working Ranch Radio Show, returning back to Rural Radio, Channel 147 on Sirius XM. Well, right now, shout out to our sponsors for this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association. And, you know, there's a lot of tradition in cattle industry that we admire and we do appreciate. However, at the end of the day, we still have to be profitable, which is why the American Simmental Association believes that one of their primary purposes for existence is genetic evaluation and providing genetic awareness tools that help producers make decisions that will move their operations forward from things like maternal traits to terminal traits. The genetic merit of Simmental Genetics has provided increased profitability to the rancher. Sim Genetics is profit through science. To find out more, go to Simmental.org. Also, other sponsors include Central Life Sciences. Protect your cattle profits with Altacid IGR flight control products. The American Hereford Association, Corteva AgriScience, and their new DuraCore herbicide for weed control in your pastures. The North American Limousine Foundation and the Working Ranch Expo, December 8th, 9th, and 10th in Las Vegas at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Join us for this three-day trade show event during the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. We're going to be right across from Cowboy Christmas. If you'd like to exhibit or just interested in attending, you can find out more at WorkingRanchExpo.com. Now, one more thing I did want to pass along is how many of you found the article on page 22 of the latest April-May issue of Working Ranch Magazine very informational? It's in the That's an Improvement section. And the article was about many different types of livestock scales on the market. Now, it could be because it really has been something I've been thinking a lot about lately. But, man, I'll tell you what, having a set of scales is becoming almost a necessity these days on your outfit. So a good article there, page 22 of the latest issue of the uh, April-May issue of the Working Ranch magazine. By the way, if you do not have a subscription and are interested, you can give me a call or text at 307-363-COWS. 
or email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. I can help you out there, or you can also go to the website at workingranchmag.com. And speaking of the magazine, well, let's check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine, for Tim's Two Cents. Hey, Justin. You know, part of my job as editor is to hunt around for stories and viewpoints and issues that I can jump in, well, effectively give my two cents worth. This time I want to do something a little different. I really want to congratulate all our listeners and our readers and our Facebook, Instagram folks for the, um, I'm just so proud of you guys because the way you've handled yourselves during this pandemic, um, with grace and dignity and professionalism, I'm proud of the whole dang, uh, working ranch nation. And, uh, I think that it's important for us to remember that, that's who we are. We rise to these challenges like the pandemic, like the Packer issue there where, uh, you know, we kind of had to rethink the whole way we, we process our beef cattle and, and how, we're, how we're marketing them. And I think that is going absolutely swimmingly. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. I appreciate your heart and soul. And boy, I couldn't be prouder to be part of a group than I am to be part of the Working Ranch Nation. Justin, back to you. Well, Captain, after hearing that, you know, the thought that came to my mind was about the segments in that old TV show, if everyone remembers Hee Haw, where they would jump out of the cornfield and salute some rural town in America. Anyway, I think our Working Ranch Nation truly deserves a salute from all of us at Working Ranch Magazine and the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, stay with us. Coming up after the break, we're going to get intense, so to speak, on our featured topic for this show, Intensive Grazing. We'll be back after this. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. This week's main feature interview is sponsored by Corteva AgriScience. Keep weeds out of the way with new Duracore herbicide and make the most of your pasture. Learn more at duracoreherbicide.com. Well, with our topic today being on intensive grazing, I wanted to talk with someone that not only had they been doing it for several years, but they could also walk us through the process. For example, why they did it, some of the mistakes they'd made, uh, who they'd learned from, what they're doing now, and overall could just offer some very practical advice. So joining me now is Wilbur Reed with Reed Ranch out of Poplar, Montana. And Wilbur, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. Glad to be here. First off, I want to set a foundation for this topic. And so I think it's important that folks understand what your operation consists of there in Northeast Montana. Well, we're an outfit that's changed a little over time in regard to some of what we do. And and yet uh, a lot of our operation hasn't changed much in, in four generations. We, we have a cow calf component uh, to what we do. We, we sell some registered animals. Uh, We've, we've got a little backgrounding yard uh, and that's used, that's used primarily, you know, in, in the fall and winter to develop uh, cattle that are going back to grass, and some of those are run as, as yearlings, and some of them make it into a replacement heifer program. But uh, uh, we we're headquartered here at Poplar, and we're we're along the Missouri River, and some of our grazing is 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 done on irrigation, and some of it's uh, 
you know, done on native range and some of it's improved pasture. And so I, I guess kind of a varied terrain and, and, and certainly a little different challenge depending on where we're at. But, uh, um, you know, we had a farming component to what we did with, with this irrigation. And as time went on, uh, you know, we, we, I, I'm, I'm a little slow on the uptake, uh, I guess, but, uh, we began to realize that the cattle component of our operation really complemented everything about the very best ground. And so over time, instead of raising high-value crops, we found a class of cattle that we thought we could capture value with and in the form of beef or in replacement females or good genetics. And so... Yeah, we don't. Uh, we still raise some some corn for silage for the feedlot, but uh, yeah, most the vast majority of the acres on the entire operation are devoted to uh, you know supporting a grazing animal. Mm-hmm. As you migrated from within your your operation to more of a grazing enterprise with what you were doing and you looked at intensive grazing as a mechanism in which you could get uh, pull the most profit out of your operation what were the benefits that really drove you to heading that direction well i grew up in the 80s and and remember drought and 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 all of the negative impact of no rain for lots of years or below average rain for lots of years and I think that sort of shapes at least it did me how how you tend to look at things and there's always a certain amount of skepticism I guess so uh, just in the course of reading and, and people you met and bumped into you know this this idea of, of rotational grazing or management intensive grazing or uh, any uh, there are a hundred different names for it but it, you know it was intriguing to me and I met guys that were that were doing it and and making a real difference and and not just from the standpoint of having more grass or running more cattle but but improving the ground that they had and that just that really appealed i I guess when I'm done, I want to be able to look back and say, you know i I left it better than I found it mm-hmm. and of course, none of that is achievable unless it's profitable. You know, so the combination of those things just made it seem like something we needed that it was either going to work or it wasn't. But I, I decided there was enough there and knew, knew enough anecdotal accounts of, of guys that were doing it, making it work that we eventually started it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, and this was really the ultimate purpose for me wanting to do a show on intensive grazing was... I believe for a lot of folks, they hear about it, they read about it, but there's some hesitancy because they don't really know how to get started. So that was really the ultimate purpose for looking at this topic in our show here today. So I want to start from the beginning. And if and if I took you and we drove out to somebody's outfit and we drove into their place and you had a time to analyze their resources and what they had in place... I know a lot of different lands can be different and there's some bases that are different and we got to take that into account. But just to get started, how would you direct somebody and maybe the steps to get started and to begin the infrastructure to move this direction? Well, that's a great question. You know, in my backyard, I think I know something. And you set me down in western Montana and, you know, the principles don't change. Uh, the principles of, of good grazing and, and good grazing management stay the same. You know, the topography, the train, the, the, the resource, the, all of that changes. So I think the first thing a new grazer should probably do is find somebody in your area that's doing it. And, you know, they may be doing it well, they may be doing it poorly, but both of those guys have something to teach. And you know, there's there's a lot of resource out there. Um, Dave Pratt had a really good video uh, trying to explain that, and and that was part of the Ranching for Profit School. And and uh, you know, I I just thought that was it was it was short and kind of to the point, and 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 kind of laid some things out just briefly. But it it's a taste. Uh, there's a lot of resource out there, Justin. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, in some of the stuff that we're doing, uh, you, you know, you're going to make some mistakes. You just will. It's a brand new deal. And yet there's enough room for error that you can screw up pretty bad and still beat the conventional way of doing things. So all this resource that's out there, uh, Dallas Mount is, is, is one of the guys I met Dallas ranching for profit school. And, and I was several years in, in putting this together and I've read a lot of Alan nation books and savior books and, and, uh, and started to divide a ranch and not a lot, but, but the first thing I did was water and, uh, without water, it, it didn't matter where I ran uh, a permanent fence, a temporary fence. I, so, but I kind of had this thing laid out and I had Dallas, uh, on a consulting basis come out and, and, you know, that was great. So, so I'd invested some time thinking about it and that's kind of the thing. The interesting part to me about this is, is this is kind of a thinking deal. Uh, it isn't about how many miles of fence can you build it, you spend way more time thinking about where to build the fence or why would you build a fence, you know, and the fence might be a single hot wire. So read a lot, talk with people that are doing it, find people locally that are doing it. If you, if you can't find anybody locally doing it, call, make some connection, somebody someplace that's already probably overcome the same thing that's, that's holding you back. So one other resource uh, online, it's uh it's, it's, called on pasture. Uh, I, I believe her name's Kathy Voss. It's a whole library of articles. Uh, you know, what a, what a great resource. And, and I can get lost in that archive a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lots, lots to know. Yeah. Lots to learn there. In regards to the infrastructure, you touched on a little bit that water was one of the first things to start on. And so how much water development have you had to put into place and has your development of that, uh, you've been able to get a good return on investment? You know, that, that year that, uh, that we had Dallas come out and take a look at things. We, I, at that point we had, we had, we had started pretty aggressively spreading water and, and, and of course I'm, I'm up here in the corner right next to the Bach and oil field play that was going on and, and, man, equipment was expensive and crews were expensive. And in hindsight, I probably paid at least probably more like five times as much, you know, for some of that first water development. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is that the payback on that was so fast that, um, you, you know, I, when we started into that, I, I didn't know quite what it would look like, but, uh, that first year, without any management, we gained an additional 20 to 30% of carrying capacity just because we utilized what we were already growing better. And, uh, you know, that was, that was huge. As we started moving the thing forward, uh, as, as, as we grew more and were able to harvest more and at the same time leave more behind, uh, the thing just got better. Uh, so, Infrastructure, water is probably the most expensive thing, you know that that we do, and and yet, you know we've we've come up with with a pretty good summertime system. Uh, you know we, oh there are a couple of us up here. We uh, we we built a, a water line plow. You, your listeners will have to Google what a cable plow is. It's basically a museum piece. Um, <laughs> but uh, we modified that a little bit, and and so what it does is it feeds two inch water line, uh, you know, down as as deep as about twenty eight inches, and uh, it, most of it we wouldn't even have to bury that far. This poly high density pipe that's out there and available now is fantastic stuff. You know, to get started, there are places where we'll drop it on top of the ground and just leave it on top of the ground until we can. You know, it might take us a couple of years to get it in, but uh, it's worth covering. They tell me you double the life expectancy of it if you get it covered. So worth doing. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the details of the construction of the paddocks, like the type of wire and the posts used. More after this. If you could do something today that would bring you profit tomorrow, would you do it? 
In the cattle business, it's about efficiency. And with Limousine Genetics in your herd, your profit is just one calf crop away. With Limousine or Limflex cattle, it's more pounds naturally to sell at weaning. It's growth and feed efficiency with the added benefit of carcass merit. The other side of the profit coin with Limousine Genetics is the maternal efficiency, docility, and longevity of your cows and bulls. It's as simple as Limousine Today, Profit Tomorrow. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, your host, and Wilbur Reed with Reed Ranch near Poplar, Montana, joining me on this show as we're talking about intensive grazing. And Wilbur, I want you to go a little further into the details on infrastructure, specifically the construction of the paddocks when you divided up your pastures. For example, what type of wire did you use, the types of posts, etc.? You bet. Uh I had a guy tell me one time, be careful you don't outrun the headlights. And, you know, I dove in, and, and, and in a lot of cases, we, we overspent, and we had we sort of over, outran the headlights. Uh, you know, some of the first materi- materials we used weren't good materials. The fiberglass rods that we were using were too small. And so, and having said that, uh, we did do some things right. You know, we, we didn't maybe over-fence to begin with. We followed some natural contours and there again spent some time thinking about where where we should run a fence or where we shouldn't run a fence. But, uh, you know, the first place we did this with, we essentially what we did, we call it the training pasture. And it's it's a little small trap pasture, you know, about 300 acres. And it's four-wire barbed all the way around it except one side. One side is high tensile wire, a hot wire and a ground wire. And so when we introduce those yearlings uh, to that pasture, you know, we, we'll, we'll move them in there. And I should back up and say, maybe the best money you spend is on, it, on the energizer. You, you know, you, if you're going to control livestock, especially yearlings or other classes, you, you need output. You need lots of jewels. And and so you're going to spend some money. I've tried the other, <laughs> and it creates more problems than mm-hmm. than I can solve in a week. But uh, so a hot energizer that's well-grounded, probably the first thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we introduce those cattle to that two-wire fence. We move them in there. Typically, it's uh, one bunch of cattle. It might be as many as 1,500 head. And we'll just kind of row deer them on that wire, and uh, we'll hold them there. So part of those cattle are, are are grazing. Part of them are looking to see what the neighbor's doing, and <laughs> and and eventually you have somebody walk up and introduce themselves to that hot wire. And uh, you know it's very controlled. And and so the first while we're there, you know we may have an animal jump over, might jump through. So we take time to put them back and straighten it out. And you know those sessions last. Uh, half an hour to 45 minutes and that what we found is that if it's if they're introduced to it well meaning we've got a hot charger that is a real deterrent rather than just a just kind of a little pickle to them they they gain a lot of respect that first day uh they're in that pasture for for three days and and the rest of the summer they're behind a single hot wire no ground wire Mm -hmm. So that single hot wire, we use a uh, what they call a composite post. It's an inch and an eighth in diameter. You know, on, on flat ground, those are spread about 60 feet apart. If, we, if we're making a bend, you know, we, we've got uh, some bigger fiberglass posts that we make bends with. Lots of, lots of good material out there, you know. And it's, it's all high tensile wire the rest of the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, topography will dictate how far apart posts are. So, you know, we, we, we run through some, some up and down and, and, uh, of course there, you use more material, more posts, you know, and compared to a four wire fence or a three wire fence, the cost is, is very minimal. That wire, even in today's price, I just ordered some more, uh, I think a 4,000 foot roll, uh, that high tensile 200 K wire. I, I, it's, it was in the upper nineties. Yeah. Those posts are, I think, the last bunch of those we got in. They were they were around three seventy five a piece. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, the budget on that Energizer, uh, you know, you're probably in that 600 to a thousand, twelve hundred dollars depending on how far you're going with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Wilbur, do you do much portable type fencing where you're breaking up maybe some of your bigger paddocks into smaller with the poly wire? We do. You know, that's on on that irrigated grazing. We've got to the point where some of our rotation uh, through part of the season, at least, is is kind of a daily move, and we're on on some bigger pivots, so we're using poly wire there and O'Brien type step in post, and you know those are those are kind of big runs. A lot of our runs are half mile runs, so we can roll up a, a half a mile of wire on on a good geared reel, and uh, that's where the difference between kind of the hardware store version and Mm -hmm. and a good one they don't cost that much more but boy if you're doing it on a daily basis you know or or every couple three days it it does make a difference it it just easier on the guy moving the wire i guess but Mm -hmm. uh yeah and and good wire you know the uh um tin cove uh is is a company uh i think they're headquartered in pennsylvania we've we've used them a lot uh, Jim Garrish's outfit, uh, his son Galen runs, uh, uh, American grazing lands. Yeah. We've, we've, we've ordered a fair number of supplies from them too, but, uh, both good outfits. Yeah. 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 And they can sure, they can sure get you lined out on, on the right materials. How do you gauge your movement of your livestock through your paddocks? You know, on that irrigated grazing, you know, that is fairly new to us. Uh, we don't have years and years of experience there and, already made lots of mistakes with the irrigated grazing in regard to alfalfa. What we're typically trying to do is is manage for the legume. And so, uh, and and especially with alfalfa, you know, if, if we're going to be out there too early, that alfalfa is, is pretty explosive. And, and so, you know, the risk of bloat is certainly there. Mm-hmm. Um, as we get into a situation where we've got you know, a little bloom on that alfalfa, the risk of bloat goes down. And, uh, and typically, uh, you know, especially in that first cutting type scenario or first gray scenario in the spring, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to be out there maybe just at first bloom, you know, about the time we can see a bloom in the field, we figure, you know, we're about 10% and, uh, and we'll probably start moving some cattle into that. Our rest period, you know, uh, the, it might be a little shorter on that on that second go. You know, we might be back in maybe as soon as 30 days, but probably more like 40. I, I won't tell you that I've got that all figured out yet. You know, the, the beauty of it is I don't think we have to. You know, the, the system is set up such that, uh, man, if I'm if I'm not spot on, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't wreck the system. I. You know, I, I I know I don't want to hammer that alfalfa, so I'm not coming back in in 20 days, um, and and I don't want it I, I I don't want it bloomed out and and making seed, you know, in 60 days. So and in between, you know, we might have you know we might have trouble with water. We might have trouble. Yeah, there are, we might have all kinds of trouble, but but you're there and you see what's going on and and. You know, I guess you're developing your eye as you go, mm-hmm. and uh, that's maybe the thinking part of this. Uh, you know, you make a mistake, you learn from it, you fix it the next time. In regards to your rangeland, uh, you also talked about developing an eye, and I think that eye part that you were talking about, a really understanding and watching things, probably needs to be a little finer tuned when it comes to your native rangeland. How have you managed that? Well, one one of the first things we've we've done uh, is separate it from everything else uh, as best we can. Um, you know, where where we started that, we had a lot of introduced species that were creeping in, kind of on the edges, and uh, you know, in those well, that training pasture, for example, that you know, there's 300 acres that uh, you know there was a fair bit of introduced grass that was was growing there. So, you know, we kind of wandered the fence you know, along where that, where it was predominantly cool season introduced grass versus more native range. And, and, uh, we make it a point to graze that different than, and at a different time than that native range. Um, so, 
you know, our, our native range as, as we've gone, we, we, we start to see, we start to see more warm season grasses back in the mix. Uh, I had an old plant species book that my father had from South Dakota and man, I have to dig in that thing every once in a while because there's something, it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. There, there, there are some things pop up that, that I've never seen before. So that's pretty exciting. But you know, the whole key to all of this is, is rest. It's uh, a lot of our native range. There's some of that that'll get 363 days of rest a year. And, uh, you know, we may graze it once mm-hmm. and, uh, and some of it, uh, you know, we'll come back to, but, uh, and there again, kind of depends on, on when and what kind of moisture we're working with. But I think maybe, maybe two is that I, I don't think there is, I don't think there is exactly a set pattern for us. You know, we're realizing that we shouldn't try to be at the same place at the same time of year, you know, we, we, we move that around a little bit. And, and, and of course what that does is it encourages, you know, some diversity of species, you know, we, by grazing, you know, the same time every year, you know, we, we, we begin to select for one species over another. And we're not trying to do that. I guess when we talk in 10 years, I'll tell you, tell you what it looks like. Well, stay with us when we come back. I'm going to push back on a few issues regarding intensive grazing as our conversation with Wilbur Reed continues. Back after this. Shh. Hear that? It's a quiet, easy handling Hereford cow. That's right. No broken fences, no busted gates, no injured people. Herefords lead the way in the silent traits and fertility. Studies show they increase profitability by more than $51 per cow per year. At the same time, that's real money and real results. Isn't it time for you to come home to Hereford? Learn more at Hereford.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. My guest is Wilbur Reed of Reed Ranch near Poplar, Montana. And Wilbur... As I heard you talking in the previous segments about what all you had to do and are doing, the time it took to build paddocks and run water line and running wire, moving livestock, it's a concern I've heard echoed, and that is it's not practical. It takes too much time versus the traditional methods of grazing cattle. So when you hear that concern, what's your response? Well, I guess I can hear the complaint about having to move cattle or, or worry about electric fence. But, uh, I guess for my outfit, it boils down to economics and, uh, man, oh man, we spend less time on a per head basis. I deal with a couple different situations. Uh, you know, our Sand Creek place is more native range and some introduced versus the irrigated stuff. That's, that's kind of its own animal, the irrigated stuff. But, you know, it's pretty easy to get up there, and, and, and a lot of that is set up on a three- to five-day move. And we're up there. It's so easy to go through those cattle. You know, we, we don't have to long trot, you know, five miles to, to try to get across and see everything. Most of those breaks are set up, you know, in a, oh, 100, uh, 400 acres. And so if we have any doctoring to do or or, or bulls to move or, or just anything, it's everything's right there and uh found that we actually save a fair bit of time you know we 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 don't have to ride across the west side of the ranch to see everything or Mm -hmm. trot through the whole north end of the place to you know to get an eye on everything and and so from a time standpoint we found that we actually have more time uh or we save time you know the irrigated grazing thing uh you know that's that's a little more high intensity and, uh, and, and I guess it's kind of a, I kind of break that out as its own deal. Um, you know, we, we used to spend a lot of time making hay and, uh, for years we, we, we made high quality alfalfa and shipped it to horse and dairy markets, you know, on the East coast and thought we were really doing great things. We spent a lot of time out there. We'd take, three to four cuttings a year and, and you'd swath it, you'd rake it, you might rake it again, <laughs> you bale it, you stack it, you load it, you, you know, on and on. 
man, you want to talk about time. <laughs> that took time. Yeah, it's it's really not by comparison going out and and moving a half a mile of polywire that uh, and rolling one up behind it at some point. Uh, you know, that's an hour out of my day. Uh, so, yeah, from a time standpoint, we don't mm-hmm. we we have a lot more time mm-hmm. than we used to. The second question that I've heard as well is performance on your livestock, that when, when people have moved to an intensive grazing system, that you're, you're risking performance on your livestock. So how have you been able to manage that? We haven't seen that. Of course, I've heard that too. Um, you know, the number of cells or paddocks that you graze has a lot to do with animal performance, but... Uh, I think what we saw, Justin, was just the opposite. Um, you know, by by being able to get those cattle out on a that cool introduced grass uh, at the right time, and then move someplace else and hit a patch, you know, that maybe had some alfalfa in it later, and and roll back, you know, through some native kind of fast, and some of what we were able to do in gaining animal performance came because we were grazing. We, we kept like that cool introduced grass. We were able to keep that vegetative. You know, we can keep some of that vegetative and growing, you know, if we've got moisture, you know, right to the middle of July. And that was always unheard of, you know, left to its own device. It would have made a seed head long before and, Mm -hmm. and just been pretty unpalatable, low gain kind of forage. Mm -hmm. So, if we're managing that forage in such a way that we're taking a bite when we should be taking a bite, animal performance hasn't been an issue for us. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we've we've actually gained pounds, total pounds, and and individual weight uh, at the same time. We're about to uh, wrap things up here. Just like any ranching practice, some cautions to just keep in mind that people need to be aware of. Yeah, I don't think any of us ever consider ourselves overgrazers. It's always the neighbor that does that. It's 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 always interesting <laughs> to me how how easy it is to identify what the neighbor's doing wrong. Yeah. But it, it 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 does take a minute. Uh, you know what I found is that when we started, I always figured we had one more day in that cell, and so we'd stay one more day. And a lot of times, I think it's that one more day that really if if those if those cattle get to the point where they're taking that second bite on that plant, you've stayed too long. So I think retraining your eye is probably the single biggest thing, um, and not enough rest. That that was the obvious thing that you know that we learned in a hurry. Now we manage for rest, uh, and that I think is really kind of the key to so much of this. And we we worry so hard about being able to get back to this or get back to there and uh sometimes maybe we let the wrong things dictate where where we're at but uh you know those are probably the two Mm -hmm. biggest things Mm -hmm. justin that come to mind well wilbur before i let you go i want to give you the opportunity to offer some final thoughts or advice i felt when we started the show that what we were going to talk about today and that you would be able to offer would be beneficial to three different types of folks those that were skeptical those that were a bit naive and those that were on the fence. And so as they ponder what we've talked about here today, uh, some of it may be a little bit out of the comfort zone. What are some final thoughts or advice that you could offer? Um, we put these barriers up, you know, we, we make water development, you know, a, a big issue. Well, there's no way we can do it because we can't afford to, you know, spread water line across that. And that little plow we built, uh, a three-man crew, my son and, and the neighbor and his father, put in, in 18,000 feet a, a two-inch line last summer in one day. You know, that it wasn't a week, it wasn't a month, it was a day. And we bought that stuff last spring for 54 cents a foot. You know, so, so some of these barriers we come up with are, are pretty self-imposed. Um, you know, that high tensile wire, we, we fenced 700 and... 50 acres of irrigated ground, you know, the perimeter with high tensile wire in, in a day and a half, that's, that's kind of overkill fence for what it is, you know, compared to being out running flat, straight ground. Um, 
it's easy going. You know, we just got to go do it. Mm-hmm. And it's a little hard to go do if you, if you don't see the the economic advantage it gives you. But uh, maybe we'll get into that another time. Mm-hmm. But, man, I you know, the the reasons for doing it, the profit that's available, the mindset shift that, that can happen if somebody's interested, it's phenomenal. And, and we need to get interested, Justin. Mm-hmm. You know, these little communities, we've given our young people away. I'm really blessed. I, I just found out I qualify as silver. I had my 50th birthday last fall. So <laughs> I, AARP, but, here we come. Here we come. Well, I'm pretty excited. In the next couple of weeks, uh, Eric and I are going to be grandparents. And, and uh, you know, we have uh, our oldest daughter and, and our son-in-law are part of the operation. I have a son that that just came back and, and he's going to be married here this spring. And it's exciting. There's opportunity, and these aren't low-paying giveaway jobs. You know, we we value our time, and and so I I value somebody else's as well. And, and, you know, we can make some money doing it the right way and doing something that's good for the land and and good for people and good for cattle or sheep. I'll tell you one of my regrets. I regret that I didn't, that I wasn't smart enough to start some of this 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's maybe one of my big regrets. So, <laughs> well, Wilbur, I thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Hey, Justin, been a pleasure, and thank you for doing this show. It's uh, lots of information out there, and you're doing us a nice service. Wilbur Reed with Reed Ranch near Poplar, Montana, there in the northeast corner of the Big Sky State. My guest here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. By the way, Wilbur asked if I would share his number for anyone that would like to visit with him, would have more questions. So if you'd like to get a hold of Wilbur, his phone number is 406-768-7013. Again, that number is 406 768 7013 or you can also get a hold of me here at the working ranch radio show and i can pass along his information as well today's feature has been brought to you by corteva agriscience keep weeds out of the way with new duracore herbicide and make the most of your pasture learn more at duracoreherbicide.com well stay with us our final segment is coming up as meteorologist don day joins us to give us the hot details on sunspots and how that plays into our long-term weather outlook. How would you like an easier way to organize and manage your ranch records? It's easy with CattleMax, the software for people who raise cattle. CattleMax brings all your ranch records together in one place. Manage your cattle data, including health treatments, breeding, and calving. Ranch records, such as equipment inventory and maintenance, income and expenses. It works for any size herd. See how easy it is to manage your ranch records. Start free now at CattleMax.com. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills, your host, joining us uh, now is meteorologist Don Day with DayWeather.com. And Don, thanks for joining us here on the program. As we look at our long-term weather, first, one of the questions I want to ask you about is the increased activity that we're starting to see with sunspots and maybe how that can correlate to our weather. Yeah, we certainly are seeing a lot more sunspot activity and it's expected. This is nothing unusual. We got done with our solar minimum back in uh, late 2019 and 2020. And here in 2021, we're now going into what's called solar cycle number 25. And every 11 years, The sun goes through these very active periods of sunspot activity where you get a lot of sunspots and then you go into decreased sunspot activity. So we're just leaving the minimum heading towards the next maximum, which will probably happen around sometime around 2025. And when you get more sunspot activity, this has a long term impact, something that doesn't happen right away. But when we do see an increase in sunspot activity, several things happen that can affect what we observe with the weather in the atmosphere. First of all, when you get more sunspots, you get more solar flares. When you get more solar flares, you get more aurora borealis. You have possible electrical radio interference. But how does that end up impacting the weather? Well, what we see during solar maximums and solar minimums are two different things. We're headed towards the solar maximum, which will ramp up over the next three or four years. More sunspots 
over time, this takes about three or four years, will lead to a little less cloud cover due to a decrease in the amount of cosmic ray activity coming off the sun. That tends to make the Earth warmer. That also makes the oceans a little bit warmer. So we tend to see our stronger El Ninos and warmer global temperatures during solar maximums. But it doesn't happen right away. We just got done with the solar minimum, which does the opposite. Solar minimums produce more clouds and actually make things cooler. In fact, over the last year, we've seen a steady decrease in the average global temperatures in the lower troposphere. And that is something to be expected. And that's one reason why this La Nina we just have gone through is partly due to a lot of the impacts of the solar minimum. So we've been talking about how the La Nina has led to some drought and dryness, which it certainly has. Well, now that we're going out of the solar minimum and into the solar maximum, that helps develop El Ninos down the road. It's not the main driver of El Ninos. I don't want to give that impression. But they do enhance them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So as we get into 2022, 2023, that should mean less in the way of intense La Ninas and more in the way of El Ninos, which for a lot of the central and western United States means we should transition into a more wet pattern. But it takes a while to evolve. Mm -hmm. Speaking of central and western United States, uh, these next couple of months are going to be real key as we find ourselves in a bit of a drought coming out of last summer and into th- through the winter and into this spring and summer. These next two months are going to be quite important. They really will be. And this will be especially true for the northern plains, the Rockies and the desert southwest and many parts of the far west, which started their drought conditions with that onset of La Nina last spring. Um, even though there have been several nice rain and snow producing storm systems in March and into parts of April, a lot of the northern plains in the western United States still have drought conditions. And May, for a lot of the central and western United States, on average, is one of the wettest months of the year. So you need to get May to be wet. And not only do you need May to get wet, you need it to be wetter than normal to break that drought cycle. So we're going to be keeping a really close eye on what evolves during the month of May, because if we don't get that May moisture... As we start summer, this is especially true in, in, in the key rangelands, is, is that you have less moisture evaporating into the air, which helps feed those afternoon thunderstorms. We count so much on to help us get through that summer season. And this is what happened last spring. We ended up with a drier spring that feeds into a drier summer. So if we can get more storms in May and get that precipitation average or above average, that bodes well for the summer season, maybe not being as dry as last year. Mm-hmm. So what about like the southeast? I know earlier in the year when we were talking, you were saying that they were going to see a little bit more tornadic activity or storm activity. And we have actually seen that. Is that going to continue into the southeast and up in through the Gulf Coast? It will. In fact, if you want to look at one part of the United States that's likely going to have a wetter than normal situation and maybe more rain than they would like to see, it's going to be those Gulf Coast and Southeast and South Central states. Uh, We're going to see more enhanced chances of rain shower and thunderstorm activity. And I do believe, uh, in fact, we're going to see this uh, probably into early May is an uptick in severe weather in parts of the South Central and Southeast because of that as La Nina does help that part of the country be more stormy and more wet, while the opposite takes place in the western United States. So La Ninas and El Ninos do different things for different regions. So we've we've about covered most of the United States. The dry area also has been in the desert southwest and into California last summer and early in through the winter. What's their forecast look like for the next few months? Unfortunately, not terribly good. I'm afraid if you were to look at the epicenter of the worst drought conditions, it would be a big bullseye there in the Four Corners region and stretching west into central and southern California. Um, Until we see this La Nina wear itself out, which is probably going to take another three or four months or even a little bit longer than that, we're still expecting below normal precipitation. That's not to say that we'll have one or two storm systems into the early to middle part of May. But once you get beyond May, it's really hard to get any really good rain into that part of the country until we get into that, what we call that summer monsoon thunderstorm pattern that develops in Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico and parts of Southern California. 
that starts up in, in late June and July. So again, like the rest of the, the country that we talked about earlier, about how important May is going to be mm-hmm. and into early June, same for those areas as well, but I'm a little less optimistic that those areas are going to get out of the drought, at least in 2021. I think that's a 2022 year that we are going to look at that area getting more wet. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Thanks, Justin. Meteorologist Don Day with dayweather.com. And also, you can find his daily video podcast through his website. Subscribe there as it kicks out every morning, Monday through Friday, at dayweather.com. Well, that's going to wrap things up for our show today. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Wilbur Reed of Reed Ranch, up there just below the Canadian border in Poplar, Montana. To the Captain Tim O'Byrne with his two cents and to meteorologist Don Day for joining us as well. We're able to bring you this show because we have great sponsors and a thank you to them. The American Cementol Association providing more predictability to the producer so that you can make management decisions that increase profitability back to your pocket. Simgenetics, profit through science. Find out more at Simmental.org. Central Life Sciences, protect your cattle profits with Altus at IGR Fly Control products, the American Hereford Association, Corteva AgriScience, and their new DuraCore herbicide for weed control in your pastures, the North American Limousine Foundation, and the Working Ranch Expo that will be held December 8th through the 10th in Las Vegas during the National Finals Rodeo. If you'd like to exhibit, find out more at WorkingRanchExpo.com, or you can give me a call. I'll set you up with one of our great Working Ranch staff to get a prime location for your booth. Well, this has been a production of the Working Ranch Magazine. If you have questions, ideas for topics of the show, would like to get a hold of me, please do it by calling or texting the studio at 307-363-COWS or shoot me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Well, thanks again for joining me. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.